Reckless love. We say God's love is reckless, we sang it, but on one hand, of course, we know it's not. Reckless is a word that we use. From God's point of view, nothing that he does is reckless. But the great thing is, just like last week, when we're able to say, wake up, Lord, he's not asleep. But the great thing is, God gives us language that our hearts resonate with, that describe our experiences of God from our point of view. And truth be told, from our point of view, sometimes it feels like God's asleep. And truth be told, the good news is, is that sometimes God's love feels reckless because he absolutely pursues us at all costs. He moves heaven and earth to come and find us. And while from his point of view, yes, of course, it makes perfect sense. Everything he does makes sense. From our point of view, we sit back and we watch and we say, wow, that God would come after us with that kind of reckless abandon. That he would leave everything behind to come and find us. That he would come to this earth in the person of Jesus to find and seek us. Sinners. Separated. We're his creation. The fact that God chooses to pursue us. It's reckless. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. Today is Father's Day. And what better day to celebrate the love of God, our Father, that he has for us. 1 John 3 verse 1 says it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. Lavished. It's a beautiful word. It's another word that resonates with our hearts that allows us to say in words what our hearts can feel, lavish. It's the idea of abundance. It's the idea of overflowing, that God pours out, lavishes his love on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, you may have heard this. This may be your first time ever to hear that. It's powerful. You may have heard it many times. Sometimes it becomes a little bit rote, but think about it. Children of God. Not that we would be called his creation, though we are his creation. Not that we would be called servants of God, though we are servants of God. Not even that we would be called the people of God, even though through Jesus we are the people of God. But children, God's children, a son, a daughter of God. Jesus is the son of God. And for us to be referred to as children as well, it's unbelievable. It's lavish. It's overwhelming. It's from a human point of view. Reckless. Finite human creatures. Sinful. Fallen. Weak. Busy with our own stuff. We get to be children of God, John says, it's unbelievable. The lavish love of God. Sometimes you can tell the heart of a person by seeing how they care for not the rich and the powerful and the successful, but the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. 
And this morning, as we think about the lavish love of God that he would call us his children, we have the great opportunity to see the heart of God expressed not to the successful and the rich and the powerful, though God loves them infinitely and totally and completely, but expressed to those who might be struggling in life. And so what I'd like to invite you to do is take a Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, if you don't have a Bible with you, we provided them. They're in the rack in front of you. Just take one of those Bibles and turn to page 601. That's Isaiah 54. And as we look at this chapter, our goal is to understand something more of the depth of God's heart for us by seeing his heart for those who are in difficult circumstances, for those who are in disobedience to him, to see that as God loves the poor, the oppressed, the suffering, the forgotten, the marginalized, we can know something more of the depth of the love that he has for all people. So Isaiah 54, there are four groups that are specifically addressed in this chapter. The first is in verses one to three. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtain wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. The first group that God expresses his love for are what Isaiah calls the barren. These are those who long to have children but are not able to. And the passage implicitly acknowledges this is a painful experience. That if you want to be a parent or a grandparent and it hasn't happened, there can feel, be a feeling of emptiness, of missing out, of some way in which you were created for something and you're not able to participate in that thing. And whether it's because you're married, but there's infertility issues and you're not able to have biological children, or maybe it's because you've tried the adoption process and the doors just haven't opened for that to happen, or for whatever reason in singleness, God has not provided a spouse and provided a means for which you to have a family, whatever it may be, I know that for some here today, you might not have wanted to come. Maybe you didn't come on Mother's Day. That Father's Day and Mother's Day can be opportunities for visiting a pain that's deep in your soul. What I want you to hear this morning is that God sees that pain. That God is not minimizing that pain. But in the midst of the pain, listen to what the Lord says. It's a promise of blessing. It's a promise of God saying to the barren woman, to the couple that wants children, to the people who would love to be grandparents, 
to those who'd love to adopt but can't have it happen, for those who'd like to have a biological child but it still hasn't come to pass, hear God say to you that his desire and his purpose is to bless you in great ways. He said, open wide your tents, spread out what I have for you. Oh, barren person, is blessing beyond your imagination. It reminds me of the story of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 1. During that time, uh, often men had multiple wives, and Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah who had another wife. And his other wife uh, had given him children. And she saw herself as being Hannah's rival, and she used the fact that she was able to have children to provoke and antagonize Hannah constantly. So much so that the Bible says she was constantly in tears at the way in which her rival provoked her. Now her husband Elkanah, he sees the pain that Hannah is in. And so we're told that he goes out of his way to give her a double portion of blessing. He sees that she desperately wants children and is not able to have them. He doesn't turn away from her and reject her. Instead, he turns towards her and gives her extra blessing. That's the idea of God here. The picture of God in Isaiah 54 is one who turns toward the barren and says, I have additional blessings to give to you, to pour out upon you. Now, those blessings might be biological children. In Hannah's case, God heard the cries of her heart, and he gave her a son, Samuel, who grew up to be a mighty prophet in the Lord. What is easy to forget sometimes is that if you're familiar with the story, if you're not familiar with the story, it's easy to forget or to miss the fact that not only did God give Hannah Samuel, He gave her five other children as well. It's a very literal uh, fulfillment of this passage, which is God chose to open her womb and God chose to give her an abundance of children and blessing to her. That still happens today. I think of the couple here at Calvary who for many, many years have been praying that God would give them a biological child but were unable to get pregnant until just a couple of months ago on the day they were getting ready to send in paperwork to start an adoption process, they found out they were pregnant. That's our God. He does those kinds of things. He sees those who are struggling and chooses blessing, and sometimes that blessing are biological children. Sometimes that blessing is spiritual children. This passage, Isaiah 54, 1, is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Galatians 4, not to talk about adopted or biological children, but to talk about spiritual children. As an aside, do you know, you don't have to answer out loud, just think to yourself, do you know who in the Bible we know the most about as a father, as a dad. So obviously God the Father we know the most about. But do you know who in the Bible we know the most about their actions as a father? Now you might think to yourself, well maybe Abraham or 
or David, people like that. The answer is Paul. Paul, never married, no biological children, no adopted children. But the most father figure language all throughout the New Testament, he's referring to people as his sons. He's talking about how he's poured his life out for these congregations, how they are like, how he's like a mother wanting to give birth to Christ in them. All sorts of parental language, father finger language, love language. Paul, how is that possible? Isaiah 54, 1, he quotes it in Galatians 4 to say, this is what God does. That for Paul, who God chose singleness, he also poured out on him relational blessings in the church so that when Paul looks around, he's got all sorts of people that he's having to give fatherly advice to, that he's caring for, that he's loving, that he's being like a parent to. That's Isaiah 54. This is God's promise. I see you who are in pain because you've not been able to have a biological child or adoptive child. And God's promise is, look, spread wide your tents because either I'm going to provide biological and adoptive children to you or I'm going to provide spiritual children to you. But in either way, my eyes are upon you and my heart is for you and my longing is to fill that relational void. This is the heart of the God that we serve. This is his lavish love, not the bare minimum. The second group that God pours out his love for in Isaiah 54, verses four to six. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. Not only does God lavish his love on what Isaiah calls the barren, he also lavishes his love on the widow and the abandoned. These verses have a special meaning for me and for my family. About seven years ago, my dad died. A couple of years after that, my mom went to a grief share program uh, here at the church, a real blessing. And as she was working through the grief of having lost uh, her spouse, my dad, they'd been married almost 50 years, in the grief share program, it was suggested that at some point she needed to consider taking off her wedding ring. My mom didn't like that idea. <laughs> so she called me up and to say, hey, what are you doing in this grief share program at your church? <laughs> no, that's not what she did. <laughs> she called me up and said, something feels wrong about that. It feels like I'd be forgetting your dad. Like, I don't want to do that. And so I said, well, I think the people know what they're talking about. Let's at least pray about it. And so she and I agreed to pray together that if this was something she was supposed to do, that God would make it clear. And we actually asked God for a sign. Lord, this is a powerful thing. I mean, who wants to do something like this? Lord, you're going to have to make it really, really clear. 
And he did. It was an unambiguous sign that God gave to her that it was time to put away her wedding ring. Now, the beautiful thing was it was not just time to take off that ring. As part of that process, God bought her a new ring. And we had it inscribed with Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. And so now she wears a ring on her finger, and it's there as a reminder that when she goes somewhere and is lonely, because everybody else may be in couples, or when the car breaks down, something that my dad used to take care of that now she has to try to figure out, or when she's sitting there doing bills or is confused or thinking about the future, whatever, that ring is a reminder that God is her husband. And I'm here to testify seven years later, after my dad, who I love dearly, uh, went home to be with the Lord, that God has been an incredible husband to my mom, that he has taken far better care of her than anyone could have asked for or imagined, that this is what God promises to do. He doesn't put up with the widow. He doesn't sort of acknowledge that there are widows. His heart is broken for the widow, and he draws close and near And he does for them what an earthly biological husband would have done, except so much better. And I can testify that over seven years, God has been an incredible husband. That he's provided comfort. That when my mom walks into a room and feels like, well, I'm here all by myself. No, God's with me. That when something breaks down, God will send somebody, usually from this church, along to help her. A reminder, no, I see you, I love you, I'm with you. God also says in verse 6, he does this for those who are wives deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected. I think of the woman in our church who not long into her marriage with two small children at home, Uh, found out that her husband was having an ongoing affair, told her that he no longer loved her and that he was leaving her. And in the midst of just the most devastating news you can imagine, as she melted down in her closet all by herself, she heard a voice from heaven speaking to her saying, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And on that day, God brought her into his kingdom, made her part of his family, and has taken amazing care of her. That instead of the embarrassment of a husband who abandons her, it's the honor of a God who chooses her. One of the verses that was important to her on that journey, Isaiah 54. This is the heart of the God that we serve. A God who lavishes his love on the widow and on the abandoned. The third group, verses 7 through 10. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. 
So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Not only does God lavish his love on the barren, the widow, and the abandoned, he does it for the disobedient. Now, I can understand God's love for the barren. I mean, whose heart doesn't break for somebody who wants to have children and not able to have children? I can understand God's love for the widow. It's a painful thing to lose your life partner. I can understand God's love for the abandoned. To see someone treated that way, your heart hurts. But God loves the disobedient. (laughs) The prodigal son. The violent persecutor, the one persecuting him. God loves the man or the woman who's enmeshed in sin, who's running after everything except God. God loves his enemies. This is the thing that is hard to fathom, but the depth of God's love is it's reckless. He pursues us. We try to run away and he wears us down with his love. I mentioned my dad just a few minutes ago. My dad became a Christian when he was, I think, about 44 years old, so a little bit later in life. I was a small child, and so I remember sort of hearing the stories and can remember just small glimpses of what he was like before he was a Christian. And, you know, he never really told me what all happened that he was saved from. Uh, As a child, I had no idea As an adult, you can imagine. He never sort of said what those things were, but never once did he ever sing Amazing Grace without crying. In fact, the very last Sunday he was in church, we sang Amazing Grace. And it felt very fitting to me. To see uh, a dad in tears because of God's grace, to think Where would my family be if God hadn't run after him? And whatever he was doing to run the opposite direction, God ran harder. And whatever stubbornness he had, he did have a little bit of stubbornness. God's head was a lot harder than his. He refused to let him go. That's the God that we serve. It's a God who lavishes his love on the disobedient. You can run as far and as fast away as you possibly can think. He will run after you. The Bible says God demonstrated, he proved his love for us in that while we were his enemies, (laughs) while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were idolatrous blasphemers, while we were spitting in his face, he sent his son to die for us. The fourth group, verses 11 to 17. Afflicted city, Lashed by storms and not comforted. I will rebuild you with the stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. 
If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. But no weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. God's lavish love for the barren, the widow, the disobedient, and the afflicted. Those who are beaten down by the storms of life, lashed, crushed. I think of the family in our church who's gone through the very difficult valley of cancer, all the while trying to raise five young children. The interesting thing is in that family, the dad in the family is a builder. But Isaiah 54 says, it's God who's doing the building. And as I look at that family, I attest this truth, that while cancer has meant to destroy them, God is rebuilding what life was tearing down. We celebrate in Isaiah 43 that when you walk through the waters, you will not drown. When you go through the fire, you will not be burned. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But it gets even better. In Isaiah 54, God says, not only will you make it through, I will rebuild. I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. God is the one who is building. And I look at this family and I see children taught by the Lord. And I see a family that is stronger now than when they went through cancer in the first place. I see the Lord refusing to abandon them. And I see that as we have prayed and come alongside of them as a church, even though their extended family is farther away, that God is the one who is their shield and their protector and their very great reward. I love the fact that God says, look, I'm in charge. And when I set up guard in front of you, no weapon formed against you will prosper. No accusation against you will stand. You know what this is like to feel like you are a hair's breadth away from losing it. From thinking, Lord, I can't take this anymore. To be weak and to be weary and to be absolutely spent. It's at that moment that God steps in and says, no more. Nothing formed against you will prosper. Our enemy is licking his chops because he sees that we are vulnerable and that we are weak. And God says, but he doesn't get to decide how this goes. God says, I will protect you. And I will rebuild you. And you will be in better shape after the suffering and after the affliction than you were in before. I'm guessing you've probably experienced enough suffering in this life to know that unfortunately, sometimes humans run the other direction when you're going through something hard. God says, that's when I run to you. That my eyes are on the afflicted. That my power is at their disposal. That my purposes will stand. And that when the storms of life have beaten you down, yes, you haven't drowned, you feel like it. You haven't drowned yet. God says, I will rebuild. And what I build back, nothing will tear down. This is the lavish love of God that he would call us his children. 
And you see the depth of his heart in how he cares for the barren, for the widow and the abandoned, for the disobedient, and for the afflicted. What should we do with this teaching? Three thoughts I'd like to leave you with this morning. Number one, it's Father's Day. And to the extent to which you or I can thank God for earthly fathers, it's an opportunity to recognize this is one way in which our heavenly father can express his love for us. That while none of us have perfect fathers, we can recognize that often, not always, often we get to experience fathers who are like God in this. They're faithful to our moms. They work to rebuild the stuff that life tries to tear apart. Their hearts hurt for us in our own barrenness or our struggles. Even in our own disobedience, they continue to forgive us. And the extent to which you may have had a father who looked a little bit like your heavenly father, today's a great day to just say thank you. Dads don't really want a whole lot more than that. And by saying thank you to your dad, you're ultimately saying thank you to your heavenly father. Because any good that your dad has ever done for you, it came from your father in heaven. And even if you have a non-Christian dad or a dad who wasn't a Christian when you were growing up or whatever it may be, if they were faithful to your mom, if they did work to provide, if they did help you in the midst, by saying thank you to them, you're still saying thank you to God. Because even though your dad might not know that your father in heaven was the one who was doing this, every good and perfect gift, everything comes from your father in heaven. So number one, it's an opportunity to say thank you to earthly fathers and by doing so, saying thank you to a heavenly father. Second, if your father is no longer alive, or you didn't know your father, or your father was a source of great pain instead of being a source of great blessing, I want to affirm for you that on Father's Day, our focus is not ultimately on earthly fathers, but on our Father in heaven. And I want to give you the freedom on Father's Day to own the pain of loss, abuse, neglect, or failure on the part of your earthly father. And still acknowledge that you have a heavenly father who loves you. Father's Day is a strange day. But you can hold both those things at the same time. You can still feel the pain and rejoice in what your heavenly father has done for you. And then third and finally, for those of you who are here who are what Isaiah 54 would call barren, you're longing for children or grandchildren, and God hasn't opened the door for that yet. For the widows among us, 
or those men or women who've been abandoned by unfaithful spouses? For those here who are mired in addictions, enslaved to sin, and for those among us lashed by the storms of life, what I most long for you to hear is that God loves you. And regardless of earthly fathers, regardless of the people around you, regardless of the situations of life, this is how your father feels about you. And he has promised, he has sworn on his own authority that he will bless you. It may come as biological children. It may come as spiritual children. It may come in a closer sense of his presence, him being your husband. It may come in his forgiveness and embrace of you. It may come in him rebuilding the life that cancer or whatever has destroyed. But he has sworn an oath that he will bless you out of the depths of his infinite love for you and for me. And there's no better message to take away on Father's Day than the fact that God has lavished his love on us, that we might be called the children of God. This is how God treats his children. And if you, by faith in Jesus, have accepted God as your father, this is how he promises to treat you. If you've not yet made that decision, I'll just tell you now, you can keep running it doesn't do any good. And please, look what you're running from. Who in this world pays any attention to the barren? Who in this world pays any attention to the widows? Who in this world pays any attention to the abandoned? Who in this world celebrates the disobedient? Who in this world loves the afflicted? This is the heart of God for you. Yes, He is angry at your sin. It says it. He's angry, but for a moment, his favor lasts for a lifetime. His heart is full of love towards you. He wants to lavish, lavish on you his reckless love. You can be a son or a daughter of God. Why not on this Father's Day? Accept the offer of his fatherhood to you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.